Good morning, Redeemer. For those of you that don't know me, my name is Terry Coons. I'm one of the pastors here. It's uh, my honor and privilege to preach the gospel to you this morning. Um, This thing's pretty weird. Um, Reminds me, (laughs) when I was in seminary, uh, I would provide pulpit supply on occasion for local churches on Sunday morning when their pastor was on vacation or maybe they were between pastors or whatever. And One Sunday I was called into a really small church. I, that's usually what he worked, the small churches, really small. Old church, big high platform, and the front row was like right here. It's like being in the theater. In the front row you're sitting there looking up can count the nasal hairs of the pastor as he preached. And being a young preacher, um, I thought I was pretty hot stuff. And I had this sermon, I can't remember exactly, it was an Old Testament passage. I remember, though, that the, the scripture that I started out with said, was something like, I come quickly, says the Lord. And then it just went blank. Everything that I'd planned to say that morning just evaporated out of my mind. And so I step back and I come quickly, saith the Lord. And again, there's nothing. You know, and I'm, and I'm right here at the edge of the platform and there's an old gentleman sitting right here and he's got his Bible open and he's ready, he's ready to receive the word of God. And the third time I go, I come quickly, saith the Lord. As I step forward the third time to deliver that line, the pulpit just gave way. <laughs> just gave way, and I ended up in the lap of this old gentleman down here. <laughs> and I'm going, how embarrassing, right? And I'm going, oh, man, I'm really sorry. I, I don't know what happened. He says, Pastor, don't worry about it. You warned me three times you were coming. <laughs> so hopefully I won't end up in Michael's lap this morning. So we're preaching, or we're looking at Isaiah 33. Uh, Isaiah, uh, a very uplifting book, right, at times. Um, Sometimes it's just full of stuff that boggles the mind because it is, uh, wow, so crazy, right? Unbelievable things are happening. Um, You know, if you've been following this message series, I don't want to spend a lot of time with context, but Isaiah, the prophet, is in Judah, the southern kingdom, Uh, Isaiah and uh, Judah are uh, the remaining two tribes of Israel that have not been overrun by the Assyrians, the northern kingdom. The ten northern tribes uh, fell into apostasy long before um, God judged them through Assyria. Um, Actually, it was still going on at this time, but the end was in sight. It It was a holy mess, and the Assyrians, as they were knocking off the northern kingdom, had designs on the southern kingdom, and so they come and they, they assault Judah. And they um, besiege Jerusalem, and it's just a hot mess. There is all sorts of fear. There's disease. There's starvation. There's trembling. Uh, the leaders of Judah have, uh, are all torn up about what to do. They've sought foreign alliances. Uh, Isaiah calls them covenants with death because they're relying upon uh, foreigners, um, 
for their salvation instead of God. And um, here in Isaiah 33, we have a continuation of this. Um, Isaiah 33 is, uh, you know, the book of Isaiah is full of different prophecies against different nations that are at war or um, with Israel who have uh, aggrieved them, harmed them, uh, been at war with them in the past, and and even uh, prophecies against the apostate uh, northern kingdom and uh, apostate Israelites. Um, not a lot of happy things happy talk, but in this chapter here we have some specific promises that God offers three different groups of people. The Assyrian or the Babylonian invaders, and I say or because during the book of Isaiah or Isaiah's lifetime, the Assyrians start out um, invading Judah, and by the end of the book it's the Babylonians. So you know, picked poison. Both are pretty ruthless, pretty bloodthirsty people, not very compassionate or very kind to um, the defeated. So there's a specific promise or prophecy against the Assyrian or Babylonian invaders. We find that in Isaiah 33.1 that was just read, O you destroyer, who you, who you yourself have not been destroyed, you traitor, whom none has betrayed. When you have ceased to destroy, you will be destroyed. And when you have finished betraying, they will betray you. In other words, you're going to get what you dish out. Your day is coming. You're pretty ruthless. You're on top of your game now. But the day is coming. You're going to get it. Then we have in verse 14 a reference to the sinners in Zion. The sinners in Zion are afraid Trembling has seized the godless. So, I suppose just like any population, um, there's true believers and there are those who aren't with the program. And as I mentioned a moment ago, those in leadership in um, Jerusalem were seeking salvation from the Egyptians, uh, counting on the Egyptians to supply an army to break the siege, uh, not looking to God, but looking to man or their own resources or something other than the Lord. Um, and, um, you know, anything done without faith is sin, right? And so, Isaiah has a word for the sinners in Zion. And then we have a word for the righteous remnant of Zion. Uh, we find that in verses 14 and following, where... Um, God offers hope. He offers um, comfort. He talks about a future. And um, that's what the, the most of this chapter is about. So hopefully if I do this right, by the time you leave today, you will be uplifted with hope. Because, let's face it, I think we need hope. The main point here is that Zion and peoples of all ages have needed hope. They've cried out to God at various times. Verses um, 2 through 4 
of Isaiah 33. O Lord, be gracious to us. We wait for you. Be our arm every morning. Our salvation in the time of trouble. At the tumultuous noise, people flee. When you lift yourself up, nations are scattered. You know, um, you know I kind of gave context. Jerusalem's in bad shape. And the righteous remnant in Zion are crying out, God, hear our, pri- hear our cry. Without you, we are doomed. Without you, we're sold into slavery if we survive. Without you, we starve. Without you, we're humiliated. Your kingdom, God, your people are destroyed. Hear our cry. We wait for you. Be our arm every morning. So, you know, Dirk was talking about the timeliness of this uh, study of Isaiah. You know, what does an Old Testament prophet have to inform us today, a sophisticated 21st century people, uh, with all sorts of culture and knowledge and uh, resources, technology. I mean, we're beautiful people. We got it all together. Except we got something called the COVID virus that's got everybody on edge. It's killed, what, I don't know how many people now. Thousands have been infected. Millions are scared to death over the possibility of becoming infected. Businesses have gone out of business being being shut down because they can't conduct business as normal. People are out of work. There is um, a great deal of um, discourse over the true nature of the, of the crisis. It's been politicized. People take literally diametrically opposed positions on it. Um, it, is, it is crazy. We have troubles in the street with riots and uh, cries for social justice. Conflicting messages from the seats of power over both of these and all sorts of things in between, leaving us to wonder who's running the store and for whose benefit are they running it. Leaders are suspected of being duplicitous and self-serving. Science and technology seems impotent and powerless to heal and to save us. Our cry is the same as ancient Judea's. Can somebody save us? Can somebody lead us out of this mess? Who has the straight skinny? Who's in the know? Who can tell us the truth? We today crave exactly what Zion craved in the days of Judah. No difference at all. There's a common element between what Judah was experiencing and what we're experiencing today, and that is fear. Fear. Fear of disease, fear of trouble in the streets, fear of uh, the future, not knowing who's leading us and where. Fear of unemployment, destitution, uh, the list goes on and on. 
In reality, our, our situation is not much different than Isaiah's. So how does the Lord respond to all this? In the midst of this, the Lord, through his prophet Isaiah, responds. Now, first of all, Isaiah, the prophet, in verse 5 says, The Lord is exalted, for he dwells on high. He will fill Zion with justice and righteousness, and he will be the stability of your times, abundance of salvation, wisdom and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is Zion's treasure. Now think about that. Hold that, hold your, hold that place for just a second. Isaiah says the Lord is exalted. Present tense. If we turn over to verse 10, we hear Lord be, the, uh, the Lord himself speaking, not through Isaiah, well, through Isaiah, but the Lord says, now I will arise. Now I will lift myself up. Now I will be exalted. Almost future tense. Isaiah says the Lord is exalted. The Lord says, I will be exalted. So what's up with that? Present tense versus future tense. Well, to get some kind of understanding of what that it means, we have to understand what it means to be exalted. So a definition I pulled off the internet, the internet's so handy for things like this. Being exalted is being raised or elevated as in rank or character of high station, noble or elevated, lofty. Exalted is an adjective. Okay, here's a little, I, I just about flunked grammar in high school, so I'm reliving my childhood days. This is my best, best attempt at grammar here. Exalted is an adjective. An adjective is, is a word or phrase naming an attribute. It names an attribute. It's added to or grammatically related to a noun to modify or describe it. So when we use the word exalted, we have, to, we have to attach that to a noun. Here, the noun that's attached to exalted is the meta-noun God or the Lord. The Lord is high and raised up, elevated over all of creation, noble and lofty. Exaltation is not something we bestow on the Lord. It's his very nature. He is exalted. He is lofty. He is high and raised up. There is no one in a higher rank or of higher character than the Lord. For as Isaiah says, he dwells on high. If we human beings don't lift our eyes to the heavens and recognize the Lord high and lifted up, then that's on us. Because that's where He is. That's what He is. He is exalted. 
you know, the fact that we don't see it or acknowledge it, proclaim it, doesn't alter the fact. So let's go back to Isaiah versus the Lord when talking about exaltation. So how do we resolve the difference between present tense and future tense? I think Isaiah is speaking to the very nature of God, just like we were were talking. Perhaps he was thinking back to Moses' face-to-face with the Lord before the burning bush. And we remember the story, Moses not really excited about taking on the job that the Lord was laying out before him, said, okay, so when I go back to Egypt and I talk to my fellow Hebrews, who should I say sent me? And the Lord says, say to the people, I am has sent me to you. I am. I always thought, you know, that was kind of a strange answer. But what he was saying is that I am, I have been, I always will be. I'm timeless. I'm everything. I'm here, I'm there, I'm in your hair. I am God. I am exalted. There is no place, no time, nowhere where I am not. I am the God of Israel. Not only that, I am the God of creation. I spoke the word and all that is became. I stand out of time. I stand with one foot in the creative moment when I spoke the word, and I stand with the other foot in the consummation of history when I bring everything back together under me and I survey and possess and inhabit every moment in between simultaneously. I am the real deal. Isaiah is talking here when he says the Lord is exalted. He's recognizing that God. He's saying this God is above all things. This God is above the trouble of Judah. This God is above the trouble of Israel. This God is above war and disease and destruction and fear. We might put words in Isaiah's mouth and say, nothing is too difficult for God. He is worthy of all praise. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. It's all about Him. We could go on and on talking about this timeless God that possesses all of history at one moment. We can't get our heads around that usually because we have a trouble enough possessing the one moment that we've got before we slip into the next. And we forgot the one that was just there. But not God. He's there. He's there a minute ago. He's there now. And He'll be there he comes again and then beyond that God is exalted God is addressing his nature specifically to his people in verse 10 in the time of trouble that they are experiencing he's not saying "Oh, Isaiah you silly boy no that's not me I'm not that good you know maybe I, someday I will be it's like when I grow up 
I'll be exalted. No. He's saying, instead, Israel, Judah, Zion, my children, I hear your cries. I know you're in trouble. I know you're afraid. I know there's great mystery, not only about the future, but even in the present moment that you're living. I know you're brokenhearted and you're scared to death. But hang on. Take a deep breath. Open your eyes. And I am going to do something that will blow your minds. Tongues will be wagging about this for eons. Because the exalted God is about to break into your plane of existence and do what no man could ever imagine or even ask for. We need a word like that for us today. But you know what? We have a word like that for today. See, exaltation is not a gift to God presented to Him by us. Okay, God, we're going to exalt you. This is my gift. I'm going to place you on high. No, God says, I'm already there. Kind of hard for you to do what's already been done. Instead, when we say we exalt you, Lord, we're saying, I recognize. I recognize that that's who you are. I recognize, I affirm, I celebrate, I embrace your exaltedness, and I recognize that I am not exalted, and I need you. You know, the, uh, when, we, when we proclaim that, that's worship. When we recognize the exalted status of God, it inspires worship. I don't mean necessarily the kind of worship that we just did a few moments ago where we open our mouths and make joyful noises. That's me. And the rest of you sounded great. And that's worship too. There's something very uh, supernatural about singing praises to God and declaring His worth and His... Um, his great love for us and doing it corporately with brothers and sisters. But really, worship is anything that we do in response to our recognition of the exalted nature of God, of that attribute where He is set aside. He is holy. He is totally otherworldly. He's not just a bigger version than us a little bit smarter, a little bit better looking, a little bit more powerful, a little bit stronger. Now, he, he is nothing like us. His ways are not our ways. And when we recognize Him in worship, something very powerful happens. 
see worship is when we recognize what's going on in Cedar Rapids with not only our brothers and sisters at Redeemer Cedar Rapids and reaching out to them and loving on them and providing help and resources, but knowing that there's a community down there that's much larger, larger than Redeemer Cedar Falls and doing what we can to proclaim and present Jesus Christ to them to love them, to serve them. In doing so, we worship Him. Worship is when we, out of craziness, send a team to India and walk the muddy, dirty streets of little villages of untouchables and crowd into a a mud hut with uh, 20 or 30 people that's designed maybe to comfortably hold four or five, and sing praises to the Lord and to minister to them, to send help, to provide help and aid for pastors who are ministering under those circumstances. There's all sorts of crazy things that we can do that are acts of worship that don't involve making a joyful noise. If you look at uh, Isaiah again, He talks about that. Verse 14, um, second part of that verse, he says, Who among us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who among us can dwell with everlasting burnings? He who walks righteously and speaks uprightly, who despises the gain of oppressions, who shakes his hands lest they hold a bribe, who stops his ears from hearing of bloodshed and shuts his eyes from looking on evil. He will dwell on the heights. His place of defense will be the fortresses of rocks. His bread will be given him. His water will be sure. Your eyes will behold the king in his beauty. You will see the land that stretches afar. Your heart will muse on the terror. Where is he who counted? Where is he who weighed the tribute? Where is he who counted the towers? You will see no more the insolent people, the people of obscure speech that you cannot comprehend, stammering in a tongue that you cannot understand. Okay, editorial comment. He's talking about Assyrians and Babylonians here. They're gone. Behold Zion, the city of our appointed feast. Your eyes will see Jerusalem, an untroubled habitation, an immovable tent whose stakes will never be plucked up, nor will any of its cords be broken. But there the Lord in majesty will be for us, a place of broad rivers and streams. You know, you have to realize that that picture that Isaiah is painting right there is... 180 degrees opposed to the reality that they were experiencing in that moment. They were surrounded by people with uh, insolent speech and obscure speech and stammering tongue that you cannot understand. There was no peace. There was no safety. And God is telling Isaiah, give the people hope. Because It's coming. I am exalted and I will continue to be exalted in the life and place of my people. So a question I guess that we want to answer is 
How do we live in recognition of the exalted nature of God? And again, he's exalted whether we see it or not, whether we live in it or not. It's to our benefit that we live, that we recognize the exalted nature of God. Well, we do real worship, as I just explained in verse, verses 14 through 22. We appropriate the righteousness of God, walking in, living it as spiritual acts of worship, and we will not only dwell with him within the consuming fire and everlasting burnings, but we will experience invincible joy in our daily lives, regardless of the calamity around us. And so here's the takeaway, my friends. There's always going to be calamity around us. It's always going to be there. For those of you familiar with the history of the kingdom of Judah and Israel, you probably remember that the Lord does show up in dramatic fashion and routes the Assyrian army from Jerusalem. And there's a short-lived period of peace and prosperity, but then... The Babylonians show up, the new bad boys on the block, supplanting the Assyrians. Judah experiences the same fate as the northern kingdom. Eventually, Jerusalem falls. Judah is wiped from the face of the earth. The people go into exile in Babylon for a long, long time. The nation of Israel is no more. The kingdom of David and Solomon Glorious, God's people humiliated, scattered. Imagine the embarrassment, if nothing else. It isn't until the Babylonians are overrun by the Persians and Darius is king that a scroll is found that um, unleashes the exiles back to, to Jerusalem to build a second temple a much smaller temple, a much more humble temple than Solomon's temple. And its very existence is still an embarrassment because those who remembered Solomon's temple cried because it was so humble, so small. Eventually, Nehemiah came back, built the walls up, and Jerusalem did survive. But Israel, Judah, the northern kingdom, were ruled by foreign nations from that point on until 1948 May 4th Israel didn't exist now today there is a state of Israel but it is a thorn in the side of its neighbors and not secure But the date, May 4th, 1948, is insignificant in the shadow of an event that occurred a couple of thousand years prior to that. You know, um, there must have been a sense that the exalted God heard the cries of the people in exile in Babylon and released them to go back to Jerusalem. There had to have been a feeling, a quiver in the liver of those who made the journey, who had a hand in restoring the fortunes of Jerusalem. But it was never the same. But the exalted God bends down to provide abundant salvation 
to a faithless and fickle people such as we are. This isn't just all on the Israelites. And he does it in the form of his son, Jesus Christ. Through him, we do find significance, security, and invincible joy. He provides abundant salvation that the Israelites were asking for way back in Isaiah's day. He provides wisdom and knowledge, justice and righteousness. Our sins are forgiven. We are clothed in the righteousness of Christ and even made heirs of the Lord, children of God with an inheritance that will not tarnish or fade. We are comforted with the knowledge that the exalted Lord will not only wipe away every tear, but all the injustices of history will be rectified, every wrong redressed. The kingdom of Israel is gone forever, but the Lord's people still remain. But you know what? Even though that's true, there's still trouble. Jesus promised us, in this world you will have trouble. Judah experienced trouble even after the exalted Lord acted on their behalf. The Lord's people still today experience trouble. Not a surprise. The Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ, promised us trouble. You know, my father's generation fought evil in Europe and the Pacific. They had their trouble. My grandfather's generation fought a war to end all wars. Oh, if only. Fought it in Europe. And then faced a pandemic that killed hundreds of thousands of people around the world in many ways makes COVID look like a pussycat today. Trouble. My great-grandfather's generation fought a war that pitted brother against brother and that would determine if the United States would, in fact, remain united. Fought to free the slaves and yet we still fight over social justice to this day. Trouble yet again. Trouble is the lot of mankind. The point is every generation has trouble. I'm not going to say that our trouble is just a hiccup in history a small thing compared to the trouble that other generations through time immemorial have faced because our trouble is our trouble and it's real and it's painful and it's scary and it has immense impact on our lives. But the Lord still hears our cries and he acts. He is mindful of us still. For us, the challenge is to live as citizens of the kingdom of God. You know, when Christ came, he ushered in the kingdom of God. That the kingdom of God is here, but not yet. We have it here now, but yet its full consummation is coming at some point in our historical timeline. And we need to live as citizens of that kingdom. 
recognizing in the not yet that the will be is a done deal. Because right now, in this moment, God stands with a foot in the consummation of history. It's done. He's accomplished it. We don't see it because we live on a timeline. We live in the moment. And we can only hope and trust in the exalted God to bring us there, to bring us through. We do that by living clothed in the righteousness of Christ. That means that we admit that by ourselves in our natural state, we are sinners and we need redemption. We need to repent and give our hearts, our minds, our lives, our souls to Jesus Christ to put our trust in this exalted God and go forward not by our own wisdom, strength, power, good looks, bank account, but in the righteousness of Jesus Christ and to be filled with His Holy Spirit. You see, we wear the righteousness of Christ, but the Spirit of God lives within us. That's a gift that we've received that allows us to see the exalted state of God despite what's going on around us and to respond. Remember the Lord is exalted. Take your eyes off of the things of this earth that would discourage and distract you, the shiny objects, the squirrels that can so distract you. They may seem big and they may seem important, but that's more important. If you've been raised with Christ, look to the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above and not on the things of earth, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you will appear with him in glory. The exalted God will exalt you. That's our hope in these times. That's our promise. Don't let anything else discourage you or distract you. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you in Jesus' name for the gift of life. Thank you for the gift of hope. We bask in your glory. We adore you. Help us to keep our eyes on the exalted God and not on the things of this earth. In Jesus' name, amen.